Hope Springs Eternal for every football program starting its season preparations, and that's no different for Arizona State, even though their spring practices are actually taking place during the winter. And with another home split by Arizona State basketball, are you still hopeful for the Sun Devil Hoops program and their NCAA tournament prospects? One thing's for sure, you better be 54 inches tall to ride that roller coaster ride. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. Welcome to this edition of the Devil Junkies Podcast. I'm your host and devilsdigest.com publisher, Hod Rubino. We have just about 25% of spring practices in the book, so we'll discuss what we saw during the first four sessions in terms of quarterback competition and other players who may have surprised or disappointed during the first week of spring practice. We then shift our attention to talk to some, talk some Arizona State basketball, who once again confuses rather than excites its fan base with their latest results. What are we seeing from the squad, and more importantly, what are we not seeing that should be prevalent for a program that's trying to make a rare back-to-back NCAA tournament appearance? As always, the last segment of our podcast is devoted to you, the listener, answering your questions from both Twitter and my premium message board, The Devil's Huddle, on all subjects ASU sports-related. So here we go, for the first time ever, talking some actual spring practices in the month of February. One of my customers who goes by the name OV Devil, who's aware of my affinity to the hit show of the 80s Miami Vice, was asking me how come none of my podcasts include that theme song. Well, this one is for you, buddy. I give the people what they want. And on that note, when I start discussing Arizona State spring practice, summing up its first week of sessions, I'm going to give you a rundown of what we saw from the ASU quarterbacks and this very much anticipated position battle. If you recall, before spring practice started, I was predicting that the, on, that the only uh, returning scholarship quarterback, junior Dylan Sterling Cole, and freshman Jaden Daniels would ultimately have the advantage over the other two quarterbacks in this competition race. Uh, Joe Yellen and Ethan Long being the other two signal callers obviously involved in this competition. After the first week, I feel even more comfortable with that prediction because I think Sterling Cole has been by far the best quarterback out of the bunch. His experience and his ability to grasp uh, the playbook have been quite evident, and obviously when you're going against three newcomers, that's exactly how it should be, at least in the early goings of spring practice. The one knock on Sterling Cole is that sometimes he doesn't know how to measure the velocity of his ball on uh, shorter and medium routes, so in other words, his arm strength can at times be a liability if not used properly. For now, that's a deficiency that does not threaten the status of being the potential starting quarterback, but definitely something you should be mindful of. Right now, I would say that Daniels and Yellen are running pretty neck and neck uh, with each other. Hard for me to give a clear edge to uh, one of them, but I think that uh, at times they're making the right decisions, but at times also looking like the true freshman quarterbacks you expect them to look like as players that just arrived on campus last month. As you would expect, as spring practice progresses and the pads come on and the defense 
now throws different looks at the quarterbacks, obviously brings more pressure up front. Uh, that's when we see the young uh, quarterbacks being a little flustered. I think Daniels probably does a better job of keeping his eyes downfield while under pressure. And Yellen may have that Brady White syndrome, if you will, where he can sometimes overthink plays a little too much and that ends up resulting in a negative play, something that you do see often from true pocket quarterbacks. Now, for those expecting Jenny Daniels to just be running all over the place because of that dual threat moniker that has been attached to him basically his entire high school career, this is something we talked about many times before, and that is that you should not expect uh, Daniels to take off and run every time the things uh, do not develop downfield as um, as they should. Uh, he is is a capable uh, pocket quarterback, something that he's shown quite a bit during his uh, high school career, throwing over 10,000 yards. And when using his legs, don't be surprised if it's more for purposes of running a bootleg, running a rollout play, rather than actually moving the chains with his own feet. Now, I know a lot of us thought that Ethan Long would be the long shot, no pun intended, in this quarterback race. And I feel that with Rob Likens, the offensive coordinator, wanting to see two quarterbacks be in that two-man race at the end of spring practice, I would say the long right now is uh, far behind all three other quarterbacks in that. He does have underrated mobility for, um, for, the, for the quarterback position, but his overall accuracy is definitely not the level that would make him a viable candidate to catch up to his fellow freshmen, Jaden Daniels and Joey Yellen. I'm not here to suggest that he's running a country mile behind his two other fellow freshmen, but the purpose of this podcast, the purpose of what I'm telling you right now is just to give you a snapshot of what we've seen in spring practice until now. And based on seeing all four quarterbacks in action right now, and if you recall, two quarterbacks were getting the 11 and 11 reps each day. So now we have a situation where all four quarterbacks got an even number of snaps in those 11-11 segments. And based on those snaps on that performance of all four players, again, I would put Sterling Cole, number one, Joe Yellen and Jed Daniels, two and two A, if you will, and uh, Ethan Long trailing all three quarterbacks. Moving forward to the second week of practice, you wonder if the freshmen can truly settle down and, and just have that vicious learning curve perhaps be curtailed to some extent. Now that the newness factor, at least on paper, should be less intimidating than it was just a few days ago. And really, when it comes to Sterling Cole himself, you like to see the veteran quarterback take that next step and truly separate himself that much more from the bunch. It wasn't a perfect four weeks by him by any means, but the clear separation is there now. And the question is, as a, as a veteran player, you need to guard against the complacency that maybe a younger Sterling Cole would not be able to do, or do you actually fall into that trap and just think that at this point, there's no way those three freshmen are going to catch up to you, and that in turn does affect your performance. There is a chance that midway through spring practice, this time next week, we could see even a clearer separation of by Sterling Coles. So that would be interesting to see if that actually does materialize. It's no secret that a lot of um, coaches, 
in the program in 2018 thought that ASU's next starting quarterback is not here on campus yet, obviously lending the theory that the three freshman quarterbacks that were brought in was a vote of non-confidence in Sterling Cole, if you will. The sample size is pretty small. Again, we only talk about four, uh, four practices, but it looks like that unless Danny, D- Daniels and Yellen make significant strides in the in the coming uh, weeks, let alone somebody like Ethan Long, right now that, might, that is struggling more than the rest, that nobody can really challenge Sterling Cole right now for the starting quarterback position. So again, we're only talking about First week of practice, but uh, for now, Sterling Cole is doing exactly what you expect a veteran quarterback to do, fending off the competition, especially when that competition consists of three true freshman signal callers. Moving on to the offensive line, it seems that the left side of that line is pretty well intact and not having a lot of position movement compared to the other side of the front five. So your left tackle is Zach Robinson and your left guard is Alex Lasoya. Uh, positions that uh, both assumed LaSoya more than uh, Robertson uh, in some games during the 2018 season. Cole Cabral, obviously, your undisputed starting center. And when you move to the right side of the line, that's where things get a little interesting. As I mentioned earlier, in earlier podcast, offensive line coach Dave Christensen said that we'll see some players shifting positions quite a bit. And we have definitely seen that on the right side of the line where Roy Hemsley And uh, Steve Miller, both of them seniors, are just rotating and replacing each other at right guard and right tackle, respectively. I don't think there's um, any clear indication that one of the players is is suited better for one position than the other. But uh, that is something definitely to keep an eye on on the second week of practice and beyond. In our last podcast, we talked about the crucial development that needs to take place for the second team offensive line. Because with five starting seniors, uh, these uh, group of second-teamers are more than a glimpse into the future. They are, in in a sense, your starting five offensive linemen in 2020. I know Christensen was very high on the three freshmen that redshirted last year, Jared Bell, uh, Ralph Frias, and Spencer Lavelle. And after one week of practices, Bell is by far the better player out of the three, practicing at center, backing up Cole Cabral, and certainly being uh, groomed to be the starter in uh, 2020. Even though Ralph Frias is obviously a very young player, I have a feeling that he did not exactly live up to the accolades that Christensen gave him uh, earlier in the year. Uh, I think that much like a front court player in basketball, your bigger offensive linemen usually take a little longer to develop. And even though at 6'6", 340 pounds, he wears that weight very, very well, you could still see issues with him just not being as quick as he needs to be with his hands and with his feet, with his mechanic, mechanic and techniques lacking uh, in, in that area just because of his sheer size and obviously the relative inexperience factor in, 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 in playing college football. Uh, Spencer Lavelle was injured on Saturday, so we don't get to see a whole lot of him uh, this past week. I would say that in terms of the pecking order, if you will, who out of the three freshmen is performing the best, I would put Lavelle in between Bell and Frias. I think that Bell has uh, by far the best chance to play in, uh, in, in 2019. Again, it's imperative that uh, your center for the future definitely gets as many snaps as possible. Uh, it was hard in general for ASU reserves 
to see that much playing time when uh, you lose uh, every game by a, by a touchdown or less, aside from the ball game, obviously. But uh, Arizona State is definitely hoping that uh, their reserve offensive linemen can see a lot of playing time early and often. And again, Jared Bell seems the most ready to play out of the three. But uh, time is definitely uh, on the side for both Lavelle and Frias to further develop and show uh, that uh, they indeed have make, made the, uh, the steps, have made the strides that would feel Dave Christensen and the coaching staff comfortable inserting them in a game. I think also what you're seeing from those three retro freshmen just highlights the need for Arizona State to bring in one, if not two, offensive linemen transfers. As mentioned in our previous podcast, you probably don't want to have those transfers be uh, eligible to play immediately and only have one year of eligibility because more than likely you are going to have five seniors starting on the offensive line in 2019. But uh, for 2020, you definitely want to have that mix of seasoned players and, and younger players. I mean, obviously we'd love to have more experience across the board, but with Arizona State's numbers on the roster, uh, that's really going to be their lot in life, if you will. In, in, in terms of the offensive line. So definitely uh, crucial for the Arizona State coaches to identify the right caliber transfers because they, again, with the three uh, freshmen that redshirted last year, are, by, are absolutely going to be the core of this 2020 offensive line. So when we talk about the running backs, as we mentioned in our last podcast, Dino Benjamin was not going to receive a bulk of the carries. He's obviously a proven commodity and then some. And spring practice is definitely designed to give other running backs on the roster as much reps as possible to develop that backup running back to Eno Benjamin. The running back that actually stood out the most is somebody who we didn't expect to begin with. And also, not so much sending up as a running back, but making maybe a transition to slot receiver, and that's uh, Paul Lucas. As some of you recall, Paul Lucas prepped uh, here locally at Phoenix Mountain Point, was all but headed to Arizona State, had a very uh, late change of heart right before signing day to go to uh, Oregon State. Really didn't do uh, much over there. Was able to transfer from Oregon State to Arizona State because Lucas, who was also a very accomplished track athlete in high school wanted to run track at Arizona State and because Oregon State does not have a track program he was able to transfer immediately to AASU. Now once he got here he was still running track but uh, was also making his way towards the football team as well and Showed a little flashes here and there. Uh, I mean, really, compared to other running backs, did not stand out at all. But here in the spring, um, early on, was actually playing running back and, and doing it uh, quite well. And But now he's really lining up at slot receiver just because both Ryan Newsom and John Humphrey, who were slated for that role to back up Kyle Williams, uh, cannot play that position. And Paul Lucas has actually been performing very, very well in that role. So the question is, when fall camp rolls by and we expect both John Humphrey and Ryan Newsom to be healthy enough 
to be full participants in those sessions, does Paul Lucas go back to running back or would the coaches rather he stay at wide receiver and compete with those uh, two players? When talking about other running backs, uh, Isaiah Floyd looks okay. I can't say that I've, I've seen anything really jump uh, at me in his performance during uh, the first week. He's been consistently uh, being the second running back behind uh, Eno Benjamin. I don't see that uh, role changing at least in the next week or two, unless A.G. Carter, who has been uh, pretty quiet so far, makes a uh, significant jump right there. I don't know if I would call uh, this player the disappointment of the running back group or even one of the disappointments of spring practice, but uh, Demetrius Flowers, who came to Arizona State after a gray shirt year where he's taking care of his rehab from injury as well as some academics, arrived only here last month, so true freshman, going through the acclimation process, getting used to everything that he needs to get used to, and it's uh, pretty evident that he has a lot of rust to knock off for somebody who hasn't played uh, football in uh, almost a year right now. So uh, that's uh, the situation at uh, running back. Running out, I'll talk on the offensive side of the ball with the wide receivers. Both Brandon Ayuk and Frank Darby have had a strong start to spring practice. Both of them on the Saturday session were uh, non-participants. Doesn't seem like a serious injury or anything like that, but something we'll monitor this upcoming week. But uh, both of them have definitely uh, proved themselves as being capable aerial targets for the quarterbacks. Kyle Williams being in a slot uh, position, and we talked about this with his position coach, Charlie Fisher, sometimes hard really to stand out that much, uh, doing a lot of blocking downfield for the running backs rather than being as active as his teammates in the passing game, but uh, definitely solid job in his own right during the first week of spring practice. The uh, young player that we're looking at in this group is, is Jordan Porter who redshirted last year. And he seems as a very capable downfield threat. I think the challenge for somebody like Porter is now to round out his game and be a more well-rounded player, I should actually say, in terms of getting off the line, using not only his quickness, but also his, his physicality, and also being a more disciplined runner when it comes to routes that are more of the short and in intermediate uh, distances. Now, maybe the coaches really would like to see him more as a Frank Darby and just not be really involved in any routes that are less than 15, 20 yards. That remains to be seen. But I think that if Porter can develop that aspect of his game, then he can uh, definitely be quite uh, the asset for this offense. Not so much challenging a starting role or anything like that, but just being somebody that for two, three snaps a game and really making the most of those opportunities, whether he be the designated downfield threat for this passing game or a wide receiver that the coaches would like to involve 
in other shorter routes. He still has a pretty big body compared to his teammates, and I could see him developing, and now the question if it happens sooner or later, as someone who can make the tough catches in the middle of the field where sometimes you might be lined up against a linebacker rather than a defensive back. But so far, I think Porter has done okay, but uh, very curious to see his development in the next few weeks of spring practice. Let's move to defense and talk about some of the standouts over there. When we talk about the defensive line, and I know a lot have been said and written about this already, that the numbers are really thin over there. Arizona State only has six scholarship defensive linemen, two of them actually converted players from offense, tight end Mark Walton, who uh, missed the last practice or two due to injury to begin with, and uh, Corey Stevens, a converted offensive lineman, trying to play defensive tackle uh, for Arizona State. But the good news here that uh, the three starters, Jermaine Lole, Shannon Foreman, and George Lee, are all experienced players. Obviously, Foreman and Lee more experienced than the freshman Lole. But with the very set of unusual circumstances that all of them have been given with an extremely thin depth chart, I think they've been doing uh, just fine. I didn't see the AC running backs running wild out there against a defensive line that even only after one week of spring practice has to be absolutely taxed because it is not out of the ordinary to see all those players actually line up on the second time on the second team. I'm sorry, d- uh, defensive line where they're joined by Stevens and uh, the fourth true defensive lineman uh, player, uh, Michael Matus a retric freshman who really has not been able to stand out that much more compared to his teammates. But uh, again, early enough in spring not to draw any sweeping conclusions or anything like that. And again, I feel that in terms of stopping the run, bringing pressure on the quarterback, and obviously that's not exclusive to the defensive line. The linebackers are definitely big participants in that too. I think they've been doing just fine, and at least for now, not letting that very shallow uh, predicament of numbers adversely affect them at all. At linebacker, uh, as expected, we're seeing uh, Merlin Robinson and Darren Butler as two of the three starters. What um, is different is actually seeing Merlin Robinson line up in the middle in the mic position and Darren Butler as an outside linebacker. You can definitely chalk that up to spring experimentation. We see a lot of it every year in different positions. So this is really no shocking surprise or anything like that. Suffice to say that Butler is much uh, better suited for the Mike linebacker position. And conversely, Merlin Robinson has been doing so well at outside linebacker. Not to say that he can't play the Mike if needed, but with his success at outside linebacker, I definitely wouldn't tinker with that position once the season starts or as you're approaching the season opener but for now it's spring and just uh trying things out is is something that is uh definitely uh well expected at uh the third linebacker uh, position outside linebacker is, is kaylin curse thomas 
really playing as well as a veteran linebacker should play. And so far, able to uh, hold off some capable linebackers that I think can definitely make their mark. Uh, Kyle Soley is uh, definitely one of those linebackers. The local uh, Scottsdale Saguaro player, a player that, and I think we mentioned this before, that both defensive coordinator Danny Gonzalez and linebackers coach Antonio Pierce have been heaping a lot of praise on. And... I wouldn't be surprised to see Soli get more first-team first reps that he's been getting until now. But uh, Chris Thomas, again, playing as a senior as, as, he, as he is, uh, is, is playing well enough to, to hold off the competition over here. One player that Danny Gonzalez uh, did mention on the spring media day is uh, middle linebacker Case Hatch, who prepped locally over here at, at Gilbert Perry, went uh, two years for an LDS mission, and really drew a lot of praise from Gonzalez just from the physical standpoint because it's not unusual to see players go uh, to an LDS mission and come back really out of shape, which you really can't blame them. They're not out there tossing the pigskin on weekends or anything like that during their mission and sometimes face quite an uphill battle to get back into football shape. But Case Hatch, for one reason or another, uh, didn't look like he was uh, missing uh, too much time uh, in the weight room. And somebody who right now appears to be a very capable backup Mike linebacker to, right now, Merlin Robinson, but during the season, most likely Darian Butler. The last linebacker I'll mention over here is Richie Hughes, a player who redshirted last year. I haven't been able to see too much of him because uh, he was injured uh, the other day. It's supposed to be back next week, but uh, haven't been able to see a whole lot from him for even a smaller sample size in the first four practices. Has a chance to battle uh, Kyle Soley to uh, threaten uh, Chris Thomas for, for, for that starting position, but I think also in reality might want to concentrate more on establishing himself on the second team. Uh, because didn't really show too many flashes in 2018 and I think has uh, quite a bit of ways to go to really uh, be a significant contributor in fall camp when both Tyler Johnson and Stanley Lambert are expected to return. Stanley Lambert might be somewhat of a, a question mark just because of the timing of his injury, which took place during ball practices and the severity of it too. But uh, when those two players are healthy, that can only further push Reggie Hughes down the depth chart. So it's really imperative for him to have a good spring to show the coaches that he made advancements from last year. Hard to do when you're sidelined with an injury, but uh, an early return for Reggie Hughes could spell good news in that area. Lastly on defense, we'll talk about the secondary, starting with Tillman's safety role and the biggest Storyline here has been the return of Tyler Wiley, who suffered a broken ankle, some ligament damage in fall camp, was sidelined for the entire 2018 season. Even though his appeal to the NCAA has not been ruled on yet, uh, looks like he will get that extra year of eligibility and consequently is practicing in the spring. Right now, limited role just on seven and seven periods. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if later on in the spring, 
he can feel not so much physically but mentally ready to compete in the 11-11 segment. So I think that is one storyline that's definitely worth tracking for the next three weeks here. But uh, in his absence from those team reps, uh, Evan Fields, somebody Wiley battled quite a bit in fall camp and somebody who also was able to play a lot, especially last year when Jalen Harvey was sidelined, is assuming that uh, Tillman position, uh, by, by, by and large, I thought, is, is playing fine. I think, um, as we mentioned, the defense wasn't showing that many exotic looks, especially not being in pads early on in spring. And as the defense getting more in its element, that's uh, when you see the players uh, standing out more. And uh, Evan Fields is definitely one of those players that looks natural in that role, playing at a, at a pretty high level. But can he beat Tyler Wiley once he returns fully healthy to the lineup? I think that's a big question mark because if you recall, fall camp last year, Tyler Wiley was by far one of the standouts on defense and had that Tillman safety position locked down without really much competition from Evan Fields or anybody else. At the two safety uh, positions, uh, Shari Croswell and, and Cam Phillips uh, are the starters. No really uh, surprise over here. The, uh, backed up by Langston Frederick and KJ Jarrell. KJ Jarrell being healthy, uh, local player from Scottsdale Suara, some of you may recall. Uh, good, good, good to see him um, out there practicing uh, with no limitations. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if he can really establish himself before a slew of talented freshmen arrive here in the summer. Langston Frederick is a player that actually was a starter to uh, begin the 2018 season, but uh, fell, fell out of favor in the after a few weeks. And right now, I don't see him really elevating himself, uh, elevating himself, I'm sorry, from that backup uh, role. When you look at the cornerbacks, uh, one notable absence is Chase Lucas, who due to family reasons uh, missed the entire first week of spring practice. I do expect him to come back this Tuesday. And, but in, in his absence, we got to see Tamarcus Davis, uh, the transfer from Baylor who had to sit out last year, but was placed on scholarship and a player that uh, the coaches have been speaking very highly of as somebody who can really contend uh, with Chase Lucas for the, for that cornerback position. And Demarcus Davis really has been a, a bag of mixed goods. I think the first few days of, of spring really, really struggled. And maybe it's just the adjustment of not being on the scout team uh, anymore that, that, that caused that struggle. But I think, uh, Friday, Saturday practices, finding his stride a little more. Now the question is, when Chase Lucas comes back, who's going to win uh, that that battle? And is Demarcus Davis have, has enough confidence based on his recent practices rather than his former spring practices to really hold off uh, Chase Lucas over there? And make no mistake about it, the coaches feel pretty strongly that Chase Lucas could be regulated to a backup, and this uh, seems pretty astonishing scenario for a player that just in 2017 was second team all pack 12 at cornerback. And now two years later, 
supposedly being in danger of losing a starting position, that's quite a potential dramatic development of development of events. So we'll see if that takes place. At other, at other cornerback position, Kobe Williams really uh, being the solid rock that he is. I do think that Jamarcus Davis and Kobe Williams have been challenged quite a bit uh, by the long ball, especially from from Dylan, Dylan Sterling Cole. And it looks like the receivers, by and large, are having quite a bit, quite a bit of success over there. So really curious to see if the cornerbacks, Kobe Williams, Jamarcus Davis, <clears throat> Chase Lucas when he comes back, and their backups, uh, Taron uh, Adams, uh, Darren Coronet, can really shore up the secondary in that vein because I can't think of the coaches being too, too happy with what they've seen from the completion percentage on the long balls in the first week of practice. So just to put a bow on the spring practice talk after one week, what are some of the things we're going to look for in this upcoming week of practices. Well, aside from the quarterback competition, which I know is a low-hanging fruit answer here, we're going to see who can really establish themselves as the backup running back to Eno Benjamin. And if Paul Lucas really takes himself out of the equation, just because he'll be lining up more and more in slot wide receiver. Uh, at wide receiver itself, it'll be interesting to see if uh, Jordan Porter can maybe take all the lessons learned in week one and perhaps even be more of a threat than he is now for a, for a starting role. That's uh, those, those are the storylines that, that would look for an offense. And also, obviously, the just the ongoing development of the second teamers on, on the offensive line, especially Ralph Rias, who had a pretty rough week of, of spring practice and uh, would definitely like nothing more than to turn a page in the second week of spring practice and beyond to improve his performance over there on defense. Uh, just a matter of the defensive line again, how do they deal with the wear and tear of a spring practice and the very low number of bodies in that position? That's something that uh, we're definitely, definitely curious to see at linebackers. If, if Kyle Soley can really mount a serious charge on the Kalen Curse Thomas to be at least a starter in spring practice at, at that outside linebacker role. And Reggie Hughes, once he comes back healthy, can he establish himself in the two deep from, from his own perspective? And uh, again, when it comes to the secondary, when we look at the cornerback position, uh, Chase Lucas anticipated return this Tuesday. Can he beat out to Marcus Davis, re regulate them, regulate him to a reserve role, or is Demarcus Davis really going to overcome that challenge and be the starter alongside Kobe Williams? Again, a scenario that some coaches on the staff thought is not far-fetched at all. So we're going to move from football and a sport that naturally has a lot of question marks this time of year, especially with an early spring practice, to basketball where as you're approaching middle of February, you should like to have more absolutes, more resolutions than inquiries. 
And after the last couple games by the Sun Devils, it begs the question, will the real Arizona State basketball please step up? When it comes to Sun Devil Hoops, there's no doubt in my mind that fans are shaking their heads violently, whether it be in disgust or amazement. And even I think the amazement factor of it is not all that positive. Just take a look at the last two results by this team, which really is a microcosm of the entire 2018-2019 season. On Thursday evening, Arizona State faced Washington State, the next-to-last worst team in the conference, a team that has not won a road game to date, a team that only won one Pac-12 game all year long, and that was against the worst team in the conference in Cal. So Washington State comes into Tempe and absolutely dominates Arizona State 91 to 70, leading, leading at halftime 50 to 33. Arizona State last led in that game, I think, with five minutes in by one point. And from there on, it was all Cougars, which might be an enticing proposition in Scottsdale, but not Thursday night at the bank. An absolute demoralizing loss, or maybe what should have been a demoralizing loss for Arizona State. Perhaps their worst loss since the Pac-12 expanded back in 2011. And who do you have on the docket, if not Washington, who coming into Saturday's game was undefeated in Pac-12 play, riding a 12-game winning streak overall? Clearly seemed like the bad match for Arizona State, playing that famed Syracuse zone defense that their head coach Mike Hopkins has learned for decades under Jim Boheim over there in Syracuse and a scheme that was able to transfer quite well to Seattle. The deck was really stacked against Arizona State in so many ways. But sure enough, the Sun Devils rise to the occasion just like they did against Kansas just like they did against Arizona, and played up to the level of competition, winning that game 75-63. to 63. Some of the things that stood out to me the most were really two stats in particular. The number of assists, 18 assists for Arizona State, only 10 for Washington, and points in the paint, which was a really staggering number, of 42 to 20 in favor of the Sun Devils. And anytime you play a zone defense, those are the two numbers that can really make or break your game. Ball movement, finding that sweet spot in the high post to distribute the ball from, not relying too much on outside shooting, 
those are all the elements that are a sure recipe to break any zone defense out there. Easier said than done? Absolutely. And Arizona State is one shining example of that. Certainly having its struggles with zone defense that's played at lesser levels, if you will, by other Pac-12 teams or just non-conference opponents they face throughout the years. But give credit for this coaching staff, not only able to lift this team after, again, what should have been a devastating defeat to Washington State just 48 hours before, and prepare them to play the most daunting defense in the Pac-12 for sure, if not one of the most daunting defenses out there in college basketball right now. If you recall, after the win against Arizona, Zylan Cheatham, the senior forward for the Sun Devils, spilled the beans and described what took place in the shoot-around the morning of that game against the Wildcats, where Bobby Hurley had his players read the final score from each of the six defeats that he suffered to Arizona since arriving in Tempe and running a baseline-to-baseline gasser for each point deficit. All in total, running 92 times from baseline to baseline. So this time, Hurley didn't wait for Cheatham to spill the beans on his tactics going into the Washington game. And he said that in the practice that they had on Friday, he did not allow his team to shoot the ball. It was all concentrated on ball movement and effectively playing the zone, almost making the act of shooting secondary and placing more emphasis on ball movement and really putting the ball in the right hands at the right time in order to defeat a scheme that can be extremely frustrating to face. Zalan Chidim obviously confirmed that after he came up and spoke to the media after Hurley and affectionately called his coach a lunatic for doing that. Well, unconventional method for sure, but one that worked really, really well. And just like running those baseline-to-baseline sprints or gassers before the Arizona game, Bobby Hurley is able to push the right buttons when needed. But now the question is, how come those buttons aren't pushed each and every game? What happened during the practices leading up to the Princeton game? Or leading up to the Washington State game? Or a frustrating loss to Utah at home really early in the season? A game where Arizona State led by 17 points in the first half, 28-11. to 11. And somebody said in the media room after the game, if Arizona State does not make the NCAA tournament, that 28-11 against Utah, that 17-point margin in the first half, 
is something that's going to stick in his cross, so to speak, in terms of the reason, perhaps, why Arizona State did not make a return trip to March Madness. So, well, the Washington game, again, can bring you a lot of joy as an Arizona State fan that you're able to beat the absolute best team in the Pac-12, a team that, even without lost to Arizona State, barring any unforeseen circumstances, should win the regular season Pac-12 crown, right now having a three-game lead on Arizona State and a couple other teams. But at the same time, you just wonder, where was this performance? Where was that performance against a team like Washington State? Much inferior in talent, not only the Washington, but basically any other team in the league not named Cal. Why can't those but buttons be pushed each and every time? Why can't that edge be kept each and every time on the Arizona State players? I mean, it's a team that had a pretty nice non-conference season. No shame at all losing to a team like Nevada, a top 25 program. Even though it was a game that Arizona State should have won based on an excellent first half that they played. Then you had a loss on the road to Vanderbilt, which was 48 hours after a very emotional win at Georgia. Someone can accept that loss. Obviously, the big blemish is that loss to Princeton at home, 67-66. But, again, overall, not a horrible non-conference season. Not a non-conference season that would necessarily spell gloom and doom for Pac-12 play. But then you go into your Pac-12 opener against Utah. Like I said, squander a 17-point first-half lead to lose 96-86, a game where Utah made 16 three-point shots, an absolute aspect that you cannot overcome by any means. And then Arizona State gets on a little roll over here, and after their win against Arizona, we're winner of four of the last five games. You felt that this team just might be hitting its stride. And then comes the Washington State loss. And I know Bobby Hurley talked about the aspects that led to that loss, where Zylan Cheatham was sick and uh, was barely practicing in the days leading up to that contest. Remy Martin reaggravated his ankle injury also during that time frame, did not practice fully. So there was some factors that were stacked against Arizona State. But one frustrating aspect to me is that we as the media meet with Bobby Hurley usually 24 hours before their game that week. So we met with them on Tuesday, and he talked about Washington State really didn't want to talk about Washington at all. Uh, he definitely gave the impression that he's not overlooking Washington State by any means. And he talked about how dangerous they are in their three-point shooting. So obviously when you go into this game, that's the focal point of the scouting report. I mean, at this point, both the players and the media and the fans 
all know what to expect from this Cougars team. Even though it's a program that struggled quite a bit throughout the year, you know that you need to guard against the three-point shot. You also know that their star player, Robert Franks, leads the Pac-12 in scoring, is by far the brightest spot on that team, and if there's any player on that squad that you need to stop, that would be Robert Franks. So Arizona State ends up giving up 12 three-point shots for the game, but none of them came, none of them, I'm sorry, came in the first half, so three surrendered in the second half. And Robert Franks, everybody knew who Arizona State had to stop, and here is dropping 24 points. At halftime, I believe he had 24 points, which eclipsed his season average per game. So this really begs the question, if all the factors are there in front of you, the Robert Franks factor, the three-point factor, and you're definitely conveying an impression that you're not overlooking Washington State by any means ahead of a huge game against Washington, why does this performance happen? I mean, are the coaches just not able to get through to the players unless they're resorting to unconventional methods, whether it's running from baseline to baseline for every deficit point suffered against UVA in the last three years, or just conducting a practice where the players cannot shoot the ball and just concentrate on how to break the zone in the ball movement and their spacing. I'd like to think that one of the better teams in the Pac-12 does not have to go to his back, go to their so-called bag of tricks every time they need to find a solution on how to pick themselves up after defeats that really should not be taking place. And you can even go back to the Colorado game, which was the next game after that loss to Utah, where Arizona State started three frontcourt players, Zylan Cheatham, Daquan Lake, Romello White, played zone defense, I mean, definitely the first half and maybe some parts of the second half, and absolutely caught Colorado off guard. So again, another gimmick employed by Arizona State. So the stories are cute and maybe fun for media to report. But again, why does it have to come to that for Arizona State to win games? Why can they just play a solid brand of basketball on both ends of the court? Why can't they let their talent advantage shine? Because really, aside from Washington, and maybe Oregon, who's not really playing up to their talent level, I don't think there's any other team there in the Pac-12 right now that just has as much talent as Arizona State. And that's what should be coming out each and every night. Another thing that you're concerned about Arizona State is their play on the road. Even the games that they won on the road against Cal, against UCLA, were not things of beauty. And 
we talked, I think, in our last podcast, you should not be saying things like, oh, this is an ugly win or any other narrative like that. It's hard to win in college basketball. It's even harder to win in your conference if you're a high major like the Pac-12. As much as the Pac-12 is down right now, you may even send one team to the tournament, yada, yada, yada. It's still tough to win Pac-12 games, especially on the road. But what should concern you for a Sun Devil fan is you're sitting here right now with a record of 16-7, 7-4 in Pac-12 play. And we mentioned that Arizona State probably, and I stress probably, can get away with a 12-6 overall Pac-12 record at the end of the regular season, lose their first game in the Pac-12 tournament, preferably like it to be a loss to Washington or maybe even Oregon, and still somehow squeak into the NCAA tournament, more than likely playing that playing game in Dayton like they did last year against Syracuse. Again, and I'm just painting a scenario over here. I'm not implying by any means for this to be the absolute truth and something you can take to the bank, no pun intended, as a recipe for Arizona State to make that elusive consecutive return to March Madness. But for the sake of argument, let's just work with that scenario. That means that Arizona State can only afford to lose two more Pac-12 games before the Pac-12 tournament. Now here's the thing. The next five of seven games for Arizona State are on the road. With that set of circumstances, how confident are you that Arizona State can only suffer two losses from here on out? And you have very challenging road games at Oregon, at Oregon State, and at Arizona to finish the year. And not to say that the games at Colorado and at Utah, and especially at Utah, will, will be a cakewalk to begin with. I'm not sure that Arizona State even won a game at Utah since they joined the Pac-12. And the Utes are very good in protecting their home court quite well. So the margin of error is extremely small for Arizona State. And I know I probably sound like a broken record saying that, but that's a predicament that you put yourself in when you lose to a team like Princeton or a team like Utah or Stanford on the road. You really just back yourself into a corner more and more. And going back to the coaching staff, who was not able to win chess matches that it should have won earlier in the year, and maybe as of late are trying to figure out ways to do it, resorting to methods that are quite unique, to say the least, but getting the job done, is that going to be the recipe going forward for this basketball team? And can you find that lightning in the bottle? The way you prepare for Washington, the way you beat them, 
And like I said, this this is an impressive game by Arizona State. That Washington zone defense is no joke. It is quite the challenge to break it. And Arizona State did and, and did so well. This is a game that really, for the most part, was not in question. I mean, sure, Washington brought the deficit to six, eight points. Sometimes, I mean, at periods of time during during the second half, but then they never tied the game in the second half. When you look at their last lead of the game, it was with 15 minutes left in the first half. I mean, Arizona State was in control. This was an impressive performance. This wasn't a fluke win or anything like that. This was pure, adequate preparation. So can the coaches do what they need to do, whether it's left field mythology or whether it's just meat and potatoes preparing for a basketball game like they do any other opponent that they face during the season, can they make sure that Arizona State does have that strong finish to the season? Because, again, they they really are walking a thin line over here. I, mean, I haven't looked at the latest bracket projections, and they really don't come out, I think, until Monday because there's so many games that are played on Sunday. And I suspect to see Arizona State still making the tournament. And now the question is, are there going to be an 11 seed playing that playing game at Dayton like they did last year, or just an 11 seed that's firmly in the Pac-12 tournament, not worrying about being that team that's ranked between 65 and 68? And I think that's really more a perception issue. I mean, sure, Arizona State would like to be firmly in the tournament and not in the play-in game just to show some kind of advancement, development from the previous season. But at the same time, if you went to Dayton two years in a row, it will still show go down in the record books as making back-to-back NCAA tournament appearances, something that hasn't happened, I believe, since the early 80s. And that just shows you the overall struggles of this basketball program over the years. And it's quite humorous to hear fans complain about Bobby Hurley being mediocre and not that, and not that much better than Herb Zendik or Rob Evans. And with all due respect to those opinions, I think they are greatly mistaken. Bobby Hurley is not a perfect coach. Bobby Hurley is a young coach. He only coached two years in Buffalo before he entered his position here in Tempe. This is only his fourth year on the job. There's a lot for him to learn. And I've said many times in the past that having more X's and O's capable coaches on the staff is something that can greatly assist Bobby Hurley. I mean, let's face it, since he started coaching Arizona State, they never finished above eighth place. And they finished eighth place last year and still made the tournament just because of an unbelievable non-conference run. 12-0, ranked number three in the country at the end of that run. So this is a year where Bobby Hurley still has to show that he's taking the next step with that program. 
But when you look at it in an average attendance, which is over 10,000 people right now, we just look at the buzz that's surrounding this program. And sure, the issues the Phoenix Suns are having are probably helping matters because if you're a basketball nut living in the Valley, you probably probably find yourself gravitating more towards ASU, getting away from the Phoenix Suns and the litany of problems that's taking place over there. But at the same time, you, for very good reason, are just sick and tired of Arizona State splitting series against teams. I mean, we're, we're sitting here right now, like I said, beyond the midway point of the Pac-12 season, only seven games left, and Arizona State has swept only one two-game series in league play, and that was against the Oregon schools at home. And going into these next two games, Wednesday at Colorado, Saturday at Utah, a split would not be pleasing, but probably the expected result of this weekend. And you definitely don't want to get swept because that, again, puts you already at that six-loss mark in conference play, a mark that really reduces your margin of error to zero and forces you to go into the Pac-12 tournament knowing that if you're not going to win that tournament in Las Vegas, that you essentially are not going to be playing in the NCAA tournament later on in March. So it's anybody's guess right now which Arizona State team is going to show up. We thought that after they beat Kansas, after they beat Arizona, that there was some kind of momentum going on, that all the issues from earlier in the year have been solved. But one disappointing slash surprising loss after another after another has really been a sobering reminder that there's a lot of work to do in this for this program and that it's a program, again, that doesn't have a lot of success in Pac-12 play this decade. And definitely not a lot of success qualifying for the NCAA tournament. I'm not going to talk about winning some games once you're in the tournament. Doesn't have a lot of success in the Pac-12 tournament for that matter either. The last time Arizona State won two games or more in the Pac-12 tournament was all the way back in 2009, James Harden's last year in Tempe. So it's hard to be optimistic of what lies ahead for Arizona State despite an unbelievable win against Washington, which again, I'm not only looking at the caliber of opponent, but just the manner in Arizona State played. They showed that they, rather than Washington, could be the class of the Pac-12 if they played each and every game that way. But I can't offer anything else but cautious optimism for Arizona State to finish the season strong. Like I said, those five out of the last seven games on the road, that is something that should greatly concern you. And you're not going to sound like Chicken Little even saying that because you're just looking at recent history and lack of success on the road that really has prevented Arizona State from finishing the regular season strong, finishing in the upper echelon of the Pac-12. So there'll be interesting times 
for this uh, program over the next few weeks. And I guess I can't wait to see what's the next gimmick that the coaching staff is going to pull out of their bag of tricks to prepare their team for the next Pac-12 challenge. Traveling down to the North Country Fair The wind sit heavy on the borderline Here we are in our last segment of the podcast answering your questions both on my premium message board Devil's Huddle and on Twitter First question comes from Santon Devil. As a bubble team, what does Arizona State have to do to make the NCAA tournament? I did touch on that earlier in my basketball segment, but I'll just repeat it. I think, and I stress the word think, that with a 12-6 and conference record that Arizona State could possibly survive losing their first game in the Pac-12 tournament in order to qualify for the NCAA tournament. Now, the qualifying for that NCAA tournament is more than likely going to require a return trip to Dayton for that so-called play-in game. Obviously, what other teams around the bubble do as well in the weeks to come is going to dictate that. But that just might be the absolute minimum that Arizona State would need to achieve in order to have even a sliver of a realistic chance of making the NCAA tournament. If they lose seven or more games in Pac-12 play when the regular season concludes, then the only result that's going to matter is winning the Pac-12 tournament in Vegas, which obviously gives them the automatic bid as the Pac-12 tournament champions. But I just don't see any other scenario other than those two where realistically you could say Arizona State is going to make it to the NCAA tournament. Again, you just can't stress enough the fact that their margin of error is so, so slow. Next question comes from Justin311. Uh, what are your first impressions of uh, Jamar Kane, the new defensive line coach for Arizona State, and Sean Aguano? as the new position uh, coach for Arizona State at, at running backs. Um, I can't say I really formed an educated, solid opinion on both. I think that Jamar Kane, for starters, is in a real tough predicament. I don't think in his wildest dreams he thought that he would be coaching five scholarship defensive linemen, and again, two of them, Mark Walton, former tight end, Corey Stevens, former offensive lineman, being part of that five-man group. I think it's a, it's a job that requires a lot of patience on his end. So I didn't expect to see him hootering and screaming out there at his players, but rather being more methodical with his teachings, again, exercising extreme amounts of patience. And I, and I think so far we, we, we have, we've seen that in practice. Sean Aguano just by his personality, is definitely a more lower-key coach 
but somebody who just motivates you in different ways rather than the rah-rah uh, method, so to speak. So those are my first early impressions of, of both coaches. I probably would have more of an educated point of view as, uh, as spring practice progresses. But uh, you did ask for some early impressions, and those are my impressions over there. Next question comes from Caterade 101, Romelo White, the ASU forward, ascending or erratic? I think when it comes to Romelo White, I've definitely been in the camp where if you're not feeding him the ball on a consistent basis, that you're not going to see production from him. Now, sure, I mean, rebounding, for example, <clears throat> staying out of foul trouble, those are definitely factors that Romelo White does not depend on his teammates to help him out with. But the game against Washington on Saturday was a perfect example when you were able to feed him the feed him the ball early and often, really finding those gaps in the zone defense. And he and he and Cheatham were talking after the game about the wings for Washington extending pretty far out from the basket where it was easy for Romelo White at times to operate. And obviously having a great game, 17 points, 8 of 9 from the field, 8 rebounds, 4 of them offensive rebounds, I think proves how much potential this player does have. But again, a lot of it is dependent on how he's being utilized by the by the point guards. I mean, really, I would say Remy Martin and Zylan Cheatham as a point forward, if you will. Are they able to feed them the ball effectively to get those points to get that production? Because when they can, I think Ronald White proves time and time again that he's more of cap more than capable of finishing around the basket, grabbing rebounds, especially especially on the offensive end, with a high rate high rate of success. So I, I really can't say White is erratic, and I can't say he's ascending. I think it's really just at least offensively, more of a product of how and when are you feeding him the ball. And when you do it in an effective manner, you see games like you did against Washington. When you don't, then the criticism on Arella White mounts that much more. Next question comes from West Valley Devil. In only four practices from day one to day four, has anything changed, in your opinion, about the quarterback battle? Um, not really, and I did uh, mention that in our, I believe, first segment of the podcast. I think that Dylan Sterling Cole is definitely going to be in that two-man battle at the end of spring. Something really dramatic would have to happen in the next three weeks for me not not to believe that that would be the case. I thought Jaden Daniels would maybe, I don't know if separate is the right word, but maybe distinguish himself a little more than Joe Yellen. Not so sure that took place quite yet, uh, but uh, Dylan Sterling Cole and Jaden Daniels are the two players I thought would be in that two-man race that Rob Likens, defensive coordinator, wants to see at the end of the spring. So in that sense, my opinion really hasn't changed. I think I also gave myself a little leeway saying that Joe Yellen could be in that two-man race, obviously ahead of Jaden Daniels, not ahead of Dylan Sterling Cole. And I think that what we saw in practice until now does affirm that. And uh, Ethan Long, 
again, I mean, not this, this is not no personal knock on him whatsoever, but I just feel as far as an overall skill set that there is some gap existing between him and the other three quarterbacks. You can argue of how wide or how narrow that gap is, but the gap is still existing over there. And that's the one player that would that would be absolutely surprised if he was in that two-man race for the starting signal caller duties. And right now, him seemingly trailing the other three quarterbacks, to me, is not a surprise at all. So really nothing has changed my mind, at least after the first week of practice, as far as what the picking order will be at quarterback. The next question comes from... And he told me that told me that I pronounced his name just right, so now the pressure is really on. Uh, Nuptine? Man, I, I, hope, I, hope, I hope I'm two for two in that name pronunciation. But his question is, if a clear leader at quarterback starts to present himself sooner rather than later in camp, will the same rotation continue? Do you feel the staff will give more reps to the rising quarterback? And that's an excellent question. And I think the coaches, both Herm Edwards and Rob Likens, are pretty evasive in their answer when it's asked by me and other media members. I get the sense that there's going to have to be some point during spring practice rather than waiting to the spring game and the conclusion of the 15 sessions for Arizona State to start giving two quarterbacks more reps than the others. I doubt we're going to see it this week, which would mark the second week of spring practice. But as we cross that midway point, which would take place this Saturday, then yes, I do think you'll see two quarterbacks taking more reps than the others. And not to belabor the point about the two-man race, but that effectively would be your two-man race when you see those two quarterbacks taking more reps than the others. So again... I don't think any coach is going to sit here right here right now and give you an exact date of when that's going to happen. But I would have to guess that after the midway portion of spring practice that you do want to have two quarterbacks given more reps than the others. Just to make sure that your opinion can be more educated, more formalized going into full camp rather than looking back at spring practice and saying, why did I not give quarterback X or quarterback Y more reps than quarterback Z when it was clear that quarterback Z wasn't playing as well, if that makes sense. So again, my educated guess is that maybe not, maybe not this week, but as we go into the third week of spring practices, Nobody should be shocked to see two quarterbacks getting more reps than the other. Our next question, or more of a comment, uh, comes from Twitter, and I definitely encourage you to post your questions uh, at uh, at ASU at ASU underscore Rivals or the, or the Devils Junkies podcast is our Twitter handle, and you can always uh, post your questions uh, when I when I do invite you to contribute to this podcast. It comes from ASU nut girl who basically says ASU basketball confuses me and you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it, it should confuse you. It should confuse every other Sun Devil fan as much as you want to talk about being used to mediocrity around this program and, and the history as 
more than enough evidence to suggest that. It definitely is baffling that you can beat Kansas. Even though you lost to Nevada, you played well enough in the first half to open a lot of eyes around the country. You beat Arizona at home, and even though it's one of the worst Arizona teams we've seen this decade, maybe this century, but that's still an achievement. That still took some good play by Arizona State to achieve. So to see all those quality wins, and obviously the one that just took place on Saturday against Washington, why are we seeing the other performances, the losses to Washington State, to Utah, to Stanford? And I think one point that I should have mentioned earlier in the basketball segment is also the youth of this team. Zalman Cheatham is a seasoned veteran, but it's still his first year, and unfortunately for the Sun Devils, his last year playing here. So he's technically a newcomer. Rob Edwards sat out with Zalman Cheatham last year due to transfer. He's a newcomer as well. Remy Martin is a sophomore. Kimani Lawrence is a sophomore. Lugens Dort is a freshman. I mean, now we look, start dipping into the bench. Um, Elias Valtanen, who's getting some reps as of late, a freshman as well. So I think the youth factor here is also something that is not letting Arizona State be consistent. It's not letting them sustain success or build upon success. And obviously an inexperienced factor is is nothing that's solved overnight. It's solved, at least you hope it's solved if you're a coach of a team, from year to year. But I know a lot of coaches say, well, freshmen start being freshmen when they have a good amount of games under their belt. And I think that's probably a nice cliche more than a true statement that has some great evidence that that, that, that does back it up. Because even a freshman that has played very well the first few games of the season, and Lugan Stort is a great example of that, can hit that freshman wall or can face teams that have done such an extensive scouting report on him just because of the amount of games that he played earlier in non-conference that they know how to stop him. They know how to exploit his weaknesses. There's no substitute to experience. And and that's a, a coach saying that I absolutely believe 100%. So again, the confusion around Arizona State basketball, the inconsistency, can definitely also be attributed to their youth. I still think, still feel like coaching, coaching should should be better. The coaches should be doing a better a better job preparing these players, not feeling they got to resort to the next gimmick on the list to get their teams prepared, especially against much inferior teams like Washington State, for example, and also just individual performance of players which some of it is just a player mentally physically not being ready or just maybe a coach not preparing them that also goes into the equation as well but those are all factors that sometimes create that negative perfect storm that really hinders Arizona State and there have been a lot of times during the season where we thought okay they had a statement win whether it be against Kansas, whether it be against Arizona, and now Washington, here here they are, turning a new leaf, 
being more consistent, playing better on the road. Whether that happens or not, like I said, as impressive as I went against was against Washington, the warm and fuzzy feeling is still not there concerning this team. Now, you go on the road and sweep Colorado and Utah, we're having a different conversation in our next podcast. But for now, it's a lot of wait and see with this program. And the burden of proof is once again on them to A, play consistent, B, play well on the road, and C, just really have the coaches probably be consistent in their own method of preparation of this team. So that will do it for this week's podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I would definitely encourage those who haven't already to be a premium subscriber for Devil's Digest. Go to our front page at devilsdigest.com and you're able to subscribe from there and enjoy my uh, musings over there and the Devil's Huddle, which is our premium message board and all the stories that we have uh, throughout the week in our extensive coverage of spring practice. Obviously our coverage of Arizona State basketball. And uh, don't forget uh, our coverage of uh, ASU baseball has already began, I should say continued. We just published our preview on the front page. And the season opener is Friday, uh, February 15th. And we'll talk in future podcasts uh, about how how that program is is doing uh, in what should be a very crucial year for uh, Skipper uh, Tracy Smith and really the overall direction of that program. So that will do it for this week's episode of the Devil Junkies podcast. Really appreciate you tuning in. If you haven't already, subscribe to my website, devilsitis.com. would encourage you to do that so you can hear and read more of my musings over there at the Devil's Huddle, which is our premium message board. Obviously, a lot going on this month of February. Continued coverage of spring practice, continued coverage of Arizona State basketball. And A2 Baseball starts up on Friday. The 15th, we already have our preview up on our front page, so make sure you check it over there, as well as our game coverage uh, throughout the season. So thank you again uh, for tuning in, and until next time, this is Old Rubino. Enjoy your week. I was living in a devil town I didn't know it was a devil town Oh Lord, it really brings me down About the devil town All my friends were vampires Didn't know they were vampires Turns out I was a vampire myself in the devil town Devil Town Didn't know it was a 
Living in a devil town, I didn't.